turn now to Acts chapter 20, 35 through 31 today. Um, this is again, this is Paul's uh, exhortation to the Ephesian elders as he met them in Miletus. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, will you forgive us for our lack of vigilance, for our apathy toward the health of your flock and toward the dangers that prowl around us? Forgive us also for undue suspicion within the flock, which only serves to spoil the unity that protects us. Lord, we are small, we are dumb sheep. We are not wise enough for these things. So we ask you for wisdom this morning. And by the power of the Spirit, would you preserve the peace and purity and unity of this flock by the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of the Good Shepherd, who alone is wise. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 31. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and sparing, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Amen. This is God's Word. A refrain that has echoed through this series is Jesus' words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think this is perhaps the most basic summary of the book of Acts. And just as a reminder, I think that uh, sometimes we, we look at the gates of hell as though they were uh, coming at us. And we've often heard that the gates of hell are actually a defensive thing. and We're supposed to assault the gates of hell. And I think I realized through the teaching of Sinclair Ferguson that it's probably neither of those things, that the gates of the city is the location of strategy. And that it's actually the strategy of Satan that assails us. And so it turns out that actually... We're supposed to do both. We're supposed to be defensive and offensive. The devil's schemes and acts have included persecution outright of the church. They've included false doctrine. They've included black magic arts. And I've reminded us throughout the series of what I've come to call the judo principle. Judo is the martial art that uses the strength of the enemy against them and that while Jesus could outright knock out Satan, usually he just steps to the side and allows Satan to fall on his face by his own efforts. This is what we see over and over again in Acts. 
So the question for each passage in Acts is always, what is King Jesus accomplishing in this passage? First and foremost, again, our attack, Jesus' attack, his military strategy against the devil is both offensive and it's defensive. And one of the main aggressors for Jesus on the offensive side is, of course, this missionary from Tarsus, is the Apostle Paul. And in Ephesus, he goes in and he, he, he disrupts Ephesus with the gospel and he preaches there for three years. Many are saved. And then he subsequently now is setting up this outpost to continue the work of the gospel ministry there and to hold up against the pressures that will assail it. So what is King Jesus doing in this passage? Well, through his apostle, he is equipping these leaders, these elders, to continue the work of the ministry in Ephesus. He's, continue, he, he's equipping them for the battles that will come, and he's equipping them to continue the work of spreading the gospel, the apostolic gospel, and the Great Commission in that place. So in this section of the exhortation, uh, we come to really what is, the, I think, the heart of the exhortation to these elders in these few verses. Um, and, and here's the situation, again, for reminder, that brings this exhortation to, to light. Uh, verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So Paul's leaving them. He's giving them this exhortation in light of the fact that he's, he's departing. Presumably, in his mind, for good, although incidentally it's possible that he actually did go back to this part of the world if you read the, the pastoral epistles and so forth. And so the point is not so much that Paul is proclaiming a prophetic utterance about what will happen, but that in his own mind he's never going to see them again. And in light of that fact, how should they proceed? How should they live in his absence? As he does throughout this speech, he sets himself forward as the example to follow for these elders. Verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. These words are an allusion to Ezekiel. Um, You could look at Ezekiel 3 as a good example. Also Ezekiel 33, 7-9. I'll read those. So you, son of man, God's talking to Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. This is, I think, an illusion by Paul to say, this is my role as well. I'm the watchman. I'm the one who's speaking on behalf of God to you. And I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, I have no blood on my hands. That's what he says in verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, which raises the question, what does that mean? The whole counsel of God. Does it mean that the preacher must expositionally preach through every passage of the Bible if he's to have a successful ministry? You know, who, 
Maybe John MacArthur's close, but a 50-year ministry is nearly impossible in one place to, to do that, even at any pay, reasonable pace. Or maybe must the preacher hit on every point of systematic theology? Is, is that the point? Uh, of course, ideally that would be good, but again, uh, to what lever, level of granularity are we talking about? What is the whole counsel of God. Of course, I think that sequential preaching through books and, and systematic theology are both important and useful aids in the goal, but I think the counsel of God is the revealed will of God, and it's the preacher's job to bring that to bear on the lives of the people. So Ezekiel, in his context, he didn't leave anything unsaid that God told him to say. He, he didn't neglect to say anything. He warned, he rebuked, he corrected. Paul sees himself as fulfilling the same calling. He didn't shrink back. He wasn't afraid to declare anything that they needed to hear. Calvin summarizes it well. He said, But sh- <clears throat> shall deliver whatsoever is revealed in the Scripture though wisely and seasonably for the edifying of the people, yet plainly and without guile as becometh a faithful and true interpreter of God. That's helpful that that the word of God is to be preached, but it's also to be preached seasonably. It's supposed to be applied as we have various things going on in our world and in our congregation. Now this, this, this whole thing preaching the whole counsel of God and the, the notion of blood being on the hands is terrifying for the preacher, for the elder. It's terrifying because the blood of, of the people is on your hands if you neglect to preach the whole counsel of God. I think of those people who who outright refuse to preach biblical doctrines because these doctrines divide. Then I think, what are my own weaknesses and my own blind spots? It is a humbling notion indeed. It's also an immense responsibility. I think of Hebrews 13, 17, which is an exhortation to obedience to the authority God has put in place, but it places a huge weight on elders, on leaders in the church. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How different this is from the sort of voluntary uh, uh, consumerism of just going to church for me as opposed to being submitted to the authority of the church elders who are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That is frightening for me. It's also encouraging because as elders, as teachers in the church, we need not invent we need not manipulate. We can put to death the desire for control. Limitations are, and boundaries are always freeing. I don't need to edit anything. I don't need to come up with anything to say. We say the word of God. Nor are we able to dictate results. That's not our job. We're seed scatterers 
and waterers, and God is the grower and the gardener. That's profoundly encouraging. Paul was an example to the Ephesian elders and also to us. The implications are here, in my absence, carry on with the apostolic gospel. And the meat of this exhortation now we see in in, uh, 28 through 31. I see a pattern here in 28 through 30. Uh, Two times Paul gives a sort of pastoral or shepherding image and illustration, followed by uh, just an outright restatement of that illustration in plain language. The first pastoral shepherding image is in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I imagine a a young boy in the fields with his father's sheep and he's been out there a long time and and nothing's really happened. So what does he do? He he begins daydreaming. He's he's swinging his stick, fighting off the hordes of his his imagination. You know, maybe he's skipping rocks across the pond. A little while later, maybe he's dozing under the tree. He's a shepherd who's not paying attention. We can draw three lessons from that image. First is that elders are responsible for watchful oversight. He says, pay careful attention, and he calls them overseers. This Greek word translated, pay careful attention, it means to to set the mind upon, to be attentive to. And it also carries with it this idea of, of guarding or protecting. So, we have, again, the, the image of Ezekiel as the watchman. That's one of the elders' job as overseers is to be a watchman. To protect the sheep, to care for the sheep. Elders are not to be dawdling, distracted shepherd boys. They're to be alert, watchful, vigilant, on guard against any threat that might harm the sheep. Like David, who, who's ready to, to slay the bear or the lion. He also calls them overseers. Uh, Greek word episkopos is translated in the Vulgate as bishop. Um, However, actually in this very passage, uh, Paul or Luke recording Paul uses uh, these three words synonymously. Pastor or shepherd, shepherding, elder and overseer. So they're all one thing. They're all the office of elder. This is the shepherding office, the teaching, the tending office, and tending to spiritual oversight and care. Uh, Deacons are responsible for the physical oversight and care of the flock. This task of overseeing, it carries with it this idea of ruling. It says in one place, let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who teach. There's this idea that elders are supposed to rule, to oversee, but also the part of overseeing is, is diligent care, diligent watchfulness. Alexander Strauch wrote a book on biblical eldership. Our 
Elders are going through it. He says, so the elders' basic responsibility can best be described as providing pastoral oversight for the flock of God. So what, what do shepherds do? They, they feed the sheep. And we remember Jesus' words to Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. That's primarily, I believe, what the, the role, the office of elder is, is to minister the Word of God, to feed the sheep with the Word of God. Shepherds also corral or guard or guide, direct the sheep into a particular place, perhaps a pasture, and we think of the responsibility of church elders to discipline, to, to teach, to provide guidance, and to, to bring in those who are wandering. Shepherds also protect their sheep. Again, a good, a good defense is a good offense. It's better to, to do that proactively through the teaching of the Word, but also in guarding against those, those teachings that would creep into the church. Also, one way that we would do that is through vetting those who would have an opportunity to teach. Not just any old Joe can, can, can come up and, and say stuff. I, when I was in Wetmore, I was the interim pastor for a while, and I preached a sermon, and there was a visitor there who I, I knew know fairly well. He, he came up to me after church, and he said, Can I say something? I said, Sure. And I thought he was saying, Can I say something to you? And before I could stop him, he was up behind the pulpit saying something. And he, he was just kind of going on and on about how people should listen to me, and how he said, I, I, would, I would follow that man to hell. <laughs> that's, he since apologized and, uh, but that's the kind of thing we're wanting to avoid not just anybody we need to vet because we need to preserve the flock protect the flock and ultimately shepherds need to know their sheep they need to be in their sheep's lives seek to meet their needs so that they can thrive Second lesson we can learn from this is that elders are sheep too. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. How often is it that the elders themselves are the source of trouble in the church? Very often. They're the source of strife, division, moral failure. And so it's imperative that elders do not view themselves as, as above the sheep, as above uh, correction, but as equal in need of mutual oversight and protection and accountability. The elders of the church need to keep an, a watchful eye on each other, and moreover, they need to keep a watchful eye on their own conduct and their own doctrine. A third lesson here is that elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit, he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I think we kind of get in here to the the question of the doctrine of ordination to church office, and, and different churches work out ordination in different ways. Whatever they may call it, that's what they're doing. 
And that's another sermon for another time. But in short, the the Presbyterian model is that an elder is to have an internal calling, a desire to do the work. Also, they're supposed to have the character and qualifications. And those character and qualifications are to be affirmed by the church. And lastly, and this is the piece that's often missing, is that, that there needs to be an opportunity or a formal call to the office. I've known many men who say, I'm called to be a pastor. But they're trying, there's no external call. So maybe they are, maybe they have the internal desire, but they don't know for sure that they're called to that until the Holy Spirit places them in that office. The point would be overall that this, this responsibility of oversight, of being an elder, is... A calling. It is an office. It's a divine appointment. It's not mere desire. It's not mere doctrinal knowledge. It's not sincerity. It's not experience. It's not business acumen. It's not merely a group of volunteers who, who do what they can to keep the church running. It's a calling. I had a man who was here saying to me at one point, I'm a teacher, and he was wanting to teach. He didn't get the opportunity. He went to a friend's church. He didn't get the opportunity there, left. It's like, well, maybe, you, maybe you're called to teach, but how about putting away some chairs? How about showing a degree of maturity? How about being involved in the community for a while? See, the office of elders appointed by the Holy Spirit. So the first image that Paul gives us is that of a, pa- a, a pastoral image, a shepherding image of being the overseer, the watchman over the sheep, called by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the flock of God. Now he reiterates this reality in plain language. This is the purpose of the appointment to that office in the second half of 28. To care for the church of God, which he ordained with his own blood. Again, what a weighty description. I I just imagine if somebody let me borrow Les Paul's original like guitar that he built... What a terrifying weight, the, the value, the pricelessness, the historical pricelessness of that object. That's a responsibility. Well, far surpassing less Paul in fame and historical significance and reverence is the God of the universe. The maker of heaven and earth, the king of all. And the purchase price of the church is his own blood. Pricelessness doesn't even begin to describe the value of the church. So we, we cannot play church. This is not a kid's club. This is not little rascals, he-man, woman-haters club. It's not a nice weekend activity or, or a loose association of, of friends with common interests. This, the stakes are very high with the church. This is a people... God's people, purchased by God's blood. 
I'm confronted daily, hourly, with my own insufficiency for these things. But I'm also profoundly encouraged for at least two reasons. And first, that it is God's church and not my church. It's not my enterprise. It's not going to stand or fall on my performance. I'm far from indispensable. And God will take care of His prized possession whether I fail or not. I can only pray He enable me to be a faithful servant used by Him for His purposes. Second reason I'm encouraged is that the the people of God is already purchased. They've already been bought. It's not my job to save souls. God will bring in those for whom He died. So we need not manipulate, we need not control, only faithfully contend for the faith once for all delivered. So Christ alone is the good shepherd. The elders of the church are just under shepherds. We're given a second pastoral image here in verse 29. A shepherding image. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It's true. There are people who have it out for the church, or perhaps more often people who see the church as a means of personal gain and exploitation. And Paul's absence at Ephesus is going to leave a vacuum. It's going to present a means of opportunity for these people to come in. And he calls them fierce wolves. This is language that's used throughout the Bible. Uh, Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-seven. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Zephaniah 3, three. her officials with her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Jesus in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Jesus again in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. They are wolves. And it says, Paul says, that they're not sparing the flock. Not sparing the flock. This is a, a, a literary device called a latotes, if I'm saying that right. It is a hyperbolic negative understatement to make a positive point. So not only do they not spare the flock, but they are there for the very reason of devouring the flock. One lexicon says for this word fierce that it's violent, cruel, unsparing, grievous. Now Paul goes and he exposes the reality behind this image and he says in verse 30, uh, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice three things about these wolves from this statement. First, is their source is that they come from the inside. 
From your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. They come from within the church, perhaps even from within the eldership itself. Um, so Demetrius, the, the idol manufacturer in Ephesus, he's a problem for the church. He, he, he wants to attack the church from the outside, but he's not the main threat. Possible threats that may come in for Paul in Paul's time is the Judaizing heresy that he deals with over and over that we've seen in Acts um, that's given the church a lot of trouble. Uh, Galatians was written to, to refute the, the heresy of uh, Judaizing and Galatians just a province over. Another potential threat to the church is a sort of proto-Gnostic or, or Platonistic philosophy, a dualistic philosophy that says the, the physical is bad and the spirit is good and, that, and therefore we're going to begin to question whether the incarnation has any value or real. This is, this is false teaching. Um, this it seems to be is, is perhaps what was the problem at Colossae, which is just a very close neighboring city. We also learn that Paul was correct, assuming, depending on when you believe that Revelation was, was written. Um, in Revelation 2, we learn that Ephesus was, in fact, the center of a lot of problems with false teaching. They had to deal with false apostles and, and a group known as the Nicolaitans. And Jesus actually commends the church at Ephesus for dealing with these and testing the false apostles and not, not loving, hating the Nicolaitans, but also rebukes them for losing their first love. And then again, more than any other threat, it's those wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus warned us about. That seems to be the devil's most effective tactic. The church history bears that out, that it's always those things, those heresies that come from within that cause the church to fall and deteriorate. Those external pressures always cause the church to thrive. Second thing we notice about the false teachers, these wolves, is their tactic. It says that they speak twisted things. Twisted things. So uh, the magicians of, of Ephesus are not coming to the church asking people directly to convert back to their old ways. The Lord is, or the, the, the devil is always much more subtle than that. This is not Muslims coming in on Sunday morning and saying, hey, you want to join up. It's not that, that obvious. People, false teachers speak twisted things. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, um, it's an interesting set of stories, but, but basically both Mars and Venus are also populated with human-like creatures, and there's also uh, angelic creatures called uh, Eldil, I believe. Yeah, and uh, these Eldila are these angels, and there's an Eldil over each of these worlds, Mars, Venus, and, and Earth. And, of course, the Eldil, the angel that's over Earth, is fallen. And the other angelic creatures, they have a name for this, this fallen angel, who's the devil, and they call him the Bent One. 
I like the way they, that he said that. The bent one. It's a perfect way of describing what he does, what false teachers do. Twisting the truth of God. After all, evil is not its own entity. It's not a thing in itself. It's a perversion of the good. And the devil has been the bent one employing bent truths from the beginning. Which is far more dangerous to us right, than direct attacks. Uh, a beautiful wedding cake laced with a, with a fleck of, of uranium-235 will taste the same. We have to be cautious. So wolves, that's a ferocious image, but we should also not be so naive to think that their attacks will be obvious. They will be perversions of truth and goodness, and they will be subtle. Third thing we learn about these wolves is their mission. He says that they will draw the sheep after themselves. That's their goal, to draw the sheep after themselves. And I think this is critical for us because at this point, recognizing that the, the false teachers come from within, we may be looking around the room thinking, Who, who's, the, who's the wolf in here? Or perhaps if we're a bit more humble, we're looking around and we're, we're, we're like the disciples at the Last Supper and saying, Is it I, Lord? But suspicion is a real problem in the church. And it's a thing that may easily be leveraged by wolves to create disunity. And so the question is, how do we identify a false teacher? How do we distinguish the false teacher from someone who's just wrong? A false teacher is not someone we disagree with. Paul gives us direction here, as we've discussed, uh, a false teacher will be a twister of Scripture. And the more mature we are and the more we have come to understand the Scripture, the easier it will be to pick this out. Uh, I like to play chess and follow chess a little bit, and I'm not that great. I'm pretty average, but as you learn to play the game of chess, the, you can tell the more advanced players quickly identify potential threats. They just can see it on the board. If you're playing someone who's more of an amateur, you can kind of leverage that against them because they don't see the board very well. The more we grow in experience and maturity, familiarity with the Word of God, the easier it will be to pick out those twisting of Scripture. Also, Paul gives us direction here. A false teacher uh, can be identified by this fact that he is drawing the sheep toward himself. He's not pointing the sheep toward Christ. He's, he wants them to follow him. Of course, it will be subtle. He'll do everything he can to hide it. And, and, and we can't assume motivation. And, and it, makes that, it makes it tricky. But ultimately, it will be revealed that this person is drawing the sheep toward himself. He cares more about himself than the sheep, than drawing them to Christ. Instead, he will be after money or status or attention or acclaim and to draw the disciples after themselves. Of course, these points are summarized by Jesus generally when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, Paul concludes this sort of main section of his exhortation with this reiteration. Uh, we, we've seen the literary device of a litotes, and another common literary device used frequently in the Bible is what they, people call an inclusio, or bookends, brackets, showing that all that's contained within these two points is about one main topic. And it drives home the main idea, namely, in our case, elders are to be vigilant shepherds and pay attention. And we see this, these brackets, these bookends, first in 28, pay careful attention. And now he concludes, he summarizes in verse 31, therefore be alert. The exhortation is to alertness, clearly. That's the whole goal. His whole emphasis to these elders is be alert, pay attention. Uh, for work, part of my job is to write letters to inmates who write in questions. And I was just kind of was going on a rabbit trail and I started to think about uh, the, the, the Supermax ADX Florence prison. Uh, I never have had a letter from there, but... Um, this is the highest security prison in the United States. And Kelly and I drove by it thousands of times because we grew up right, right there. Uh, this is where the most notorious, dangerous criminals are held. Terry Nichols, Ted Kaczynski, the 93 bomber of the World Trade Center, uh, the Boston Marathon bomber, El Chapo, the serial killers. The, the worst of the worst are at this prison, ADX, Florence. I started reading a little bit more about it, and I got to thinking how difficult it would be to be a guard there. Primarily because on the one hand, the the temptation toward boredom and apathy would be very high because of how well designed the prison is. What's going to happen when these men are stuck in their cell for 23 hours a day and security is so ridiculously high Nothing can happen. So the temptation toward apathy would be enormous. I would get very bored, I think. At the same time, who are you guarding with the worst possible criminals? One slip up and you might find yourself dead. It would be a very difficult job. So they, they must be alert. They must maintain vigilance even when they don't think anything is going to happen. In the same way, Paul exhorts these Ephesian elders to vigilance, to diligence. Now, he not only exhorts them to alertness, but he tells them here how to be alert. He says in 31, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I see three ways that this remembrance of Paul's example will serve them in this calling. And first is Paul's method. His method was persistent admonition. I did not cease night or day to admonish. 
And admonition, I think we have this idea that it's only discipline or, or rebuke, which does have that connotation of correction, exhortation, or as one, one lexicon said, counsel about avoidance or secession of improper course of conduct. I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I need. Counsel about avoidance or secession of improper course of conduct, because I'm always pursuing an improper course of conduct. And surely the heart of Christian admonition is a call to repentance, daily repentance and faith and growth and sanctification. That is to say, the whole counsel of God. So we see Paul's method. We also see the content. I'm sure that he has in mind the content when he asks them to remember his admonition. I doubt Paul wants them to remember how he admonished them, but to forget what he admonished them about. So as they take up the battle against the wolves, as they undertake the calling to to pastorally shepherd the flock, there will be no more valuable resource for them than the apostolic teaching they received for three years. This speaks powerfully, again, I think, to the importance of orthodoxy. Uh, a heterodox elder, teacher in the church with the biggest heart and the most caring intentions will damn the sheep who follow him. This is the apostolic gospel. It's got to be the center. The faith once for all delivered. The trustworthy word is, as taught. These things they must remember. And we have the same gospel, the same apostolic gospel they had. It doesn't update with the times, which speaks powerfully to the value, I believe, of, of historic creeds and confessions, of, fa- of fallible but faithful summaries of what the church has understood the faith for once for all delivered to be. These, these documents, born in the fires of trial and formed by the Spirit, and they have stood the test of time. These creeds and confessions are precious guardrails from us for us to protect us from heterodoxy and with that great heartache. So they must remember the content of the apostolic gospel. Finally, they must remember the manner in which he delivered it, namely with tears. Somewhere I read, I couldn't track down the quote, but but that this was sort of an expected rhetorical norm. Like if you were a a preacher, then it was your job to to exude a certain amount of emotion with your speech. Um, But I think it's a whole lot more than just a rhetorical device for Paul. It goes back to the notion of himself being a pastoral overseer, a shepherd, Paul cared for the sheep. He sought their repentance, faith, and sanctification with tears because he did so from a profound sense of love for the sheep. Perhaps that's where we can leave off today is this broad category of love. Because at the end of the day, the answer to the original question with which I started, what is King Jesus doing in this passage, is... He's loving the church for the glory of his name. And that's the good news in all of this, because I'll be honest, this text places a burden and a weight on me that without Christ, 
I can't bear. But it also simultaneously inspires me to press on and to do better because I can see the love of Christ in this design that He's created for His church. And it highlights my own shortcomings, which are far too many. Not to be a downer, but if you travel to the city of Ephesus today, there's no church of Ephesus. There's no Ephesus. There's a pile of rocks. It's a tourist site. Which highlights for me this simple fact that the gospel is not bound to a single place, to a single preacher, to a single set of elders. The Lord Jesus will build his church. The schemes of the devil will not prevail against it. And may he only grant us by his grace and power that we would be alert and steadfast until the day of his returning when he will show himself to be forever faithful, even when we are faithless. Amen.